They say we need more diverse applicants and they just happen to label Asians as not diverse. The Supreme Court is expected this month to make a major ruling on affirmative action. To understand the case, I sit down with Kenny Shu, an insider in the lawsuit and president of Color Us United. He's the author of An Inconvenient Minority and the upcoming book, School of Woke. We've spent three times as much money on public education in those past 30 years, adjusted for inflation. So what have we been spending it on? Internalizing critical race theory principles in our school system, teaching black kids that society is against them. In this episode, he breaks down what he's uncovered in his recent investigations. They were requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for professors to be promoted. Medical faculty, medical schools across America are basically advocating that you stop abiding by the Hippocratic Oath and you, that you start administering preferential care. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleg. Kenny Shu, great to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. So, Kenny, you've actually played a very significant role in this removal of DEI requirements from the University of North Carolina school system, which is actually 17 universities. Tell me about it. So, I'm president of Color Us United, and we are a group dedicated to a race blind, meritocratic America. And what the University of North Carolina has been doing and really medical schools across the nation is compromising meritocratic ideals in the name of what they call diversity, equity, and inclusion. So when my organization learned about what the University of North Carolina was doing, they were requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for professors to be promoted. Medical faculty, you had to sign on saying, uh, I'm gonna commit to these woke principles if you wanted to be promoted as a doctor. They were also teaching unconscious bias um, to their medical students. Um, you're learning how to be a doctor. You should be learning how to treat people based on biological facts, not based on critical race theory. And then finally, they were doing things like racial preferences and admissions, which I've extensively covered in my previous talk with you and in my book, An Inconvenient Minority. Uh, they were uh, having racial preferences for uh, if you were a black or Latino medical student, you would have a better chance of getting in if you're a white or Asian student. And it shouldn't be about that. It should be about ultimately, are you the best qualified doctor? So Color Us United, we launched a campaign to fight against these meritocratic, sta uh, these diversity standards in medicine. And on February 23rd, 2023, the Board of Governors voted to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion statements from promotion and tenure of faculty. It's a, it's a small win towards our larger goal of having the Dean of the Med School renounce DEI entirely, but it's a welcome one. Well, so I imagine they didn't just do this immediately. They didn't. So what happened was there are a, a group of trustees at the, North, at the University of North Carolina that are very supportive of our colorblind meritocratic ideals. And, you know, they've been interested in fighting wokeness within the university because, as you can see, it's just encroaching upon territories where it should not encroach on. Uh, things like medical schools, the practice of medicine, if you're a patient, do you want the most qualified doctor or do you want a doctor of a certain race? 
And I think the vast, vast majority of Americans want the most qualified doctor. So there is already a lot of concern at the university. But the dean, Wesley Burks, released a video uh, in 2020 advocating for a plan to integrate social justice into the UNC medical school curriculum. Very scary proposition. Uh, that, that means new doctors are going to be educated according to the tenets of social justice and critical race theory instead of according to the biological practice of medicine. We exposed this in outlets across America and uh, generated a lot of attention and created a petition campaign, which you can still sign at colorusunited.org. Uh, and in February 23rd, they took steps, the Board of Governors took steps to, uh, to start ridding the university and the medical system of diversity, equity, and inclusion principles. And so, and the bottom line here, as we touched on this already, is that, as I understand it, in order to, for example, get into, say, medical school, but the other departments as well, you actually have to kind of show that you adhere to these principles, I guess, or lie about it. How does that work? And they actually, even more than that, actually. So UNC, up until recently, had a had a list of sample DEI statements that you could write uh, if you want to apply to be a medical faculty or a student or something like that. And in this DEI statement, you have to basically prove to a committee of highly progressive leftists that you are sufficiently committed to inclusion. So you have to talk about what diversity committees have you been on you know, in your in college or in the workforce, um, you know, what advocacy have you done on the behalf of so-called underrepresented minorities? You have to, and and they get to interrogate you about this, and it has nothing to do with medicine, because these kids and these faculty they devote their entire lives to serving everybody, not serving just black people, not serving just Latino or Asian people but serving white people, serving all Americans. That is what the Hippocratic Oath is about. So diversity, equity, and inclusion is antithetical to the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, they were basically advocating, and schools across, medical schools across America are basically advocating that you stop abiding by the Hippocratic Oath and you, that you start administering preferential care. So explain just briefly why um, having prefer, like basically, I don't know, deciding to care for some more people of a particular race or something like that. How would that violate the Hippocratic Oath? So, when you're a doctor, you have to make a you have to make a statement that first, you do no harm. You treat everybody with dignity and respect, equally. But the new Hippocratic Oath, an oath that was taken by students at the University of Minnesota Medical School, for example, said, I commit to Black Lives Matter principles. I commit to treating certain groups uh, more preferentially than others. And in fact, you saw this in the administration of the vaccine because the city of Oakland during the rollout of the 20, the, during the 2021 rollout of the vaccine, 
said, we're going to start administering the vaccine first to, quote unquote, underrepresented populations, which they meant black and Hispanic Americans. And it's a repudiation of let's treat people according to fair principles, not based on the color of their skin. Um, another thing that this is violating is the principle of doctors to treat everybody with dignity and respect. If you start getting educated in white privilege and you're a doctor and you start getting educated to basically despise white people and imagine you're performing a surgery now in the medical room 10 years from now when you finally have some when you finally have your own practice that is going to leak into your thinking for the rest of your life so this is indoctrination you know these days practicing CRT in medicine is sort of an alternative way that you can get into the medical community the big medical journals like Nature and Science, the ones that publish, you know, the big pharmaceutical papers, you can get credit. You can actually get published in those journals by advocating nothing at all except for, oh, well, this practice creates certain racial disparities in medicine here, so we need to use a critical race theory analysis. So you have people who have their entire careers built off of CRT in our medical system right now. Fascinating and, uh, you know, deeply, deeply disturbing. So what has been the reaction to this now? It's been positive. Patients, uh, doctors have, have come out in support of this. And in fact, we, had, uh, we recently had a Cameroon-born doctor named Dr. Nietzsche Zama come to UNC Medical School. He actually trained at Harvard Medical School. He knows all the ins and outs of the profession. He come and he railed against DEI just incredible um, and certain doctors have started coming out and uh, speaking out for themselves too and speaking out for the entire profession because this isn't about just themselves this is about the future of medical care this is about fairness the problem that that the healthcare industry has right now is access to care access to care is not a racial issue there are white Americans in rural areas who lack the same access to care than black Americans in urban areas and by the way, the best way to give people the best access to care is to produce the most competent doctors. <laughs> That's how you get the best access to care, guys. And that you're transparent about it. And that you actually will show patients your patient outcome da data. That's something the healthcare industry has been very reluctant to do. You want to restore trust in the healthcare system? It's not about black doctors or white doctors. Black patients don't care. White patients don't care. It's not about race. It's about quality. You know, you, you can also imagine, right, in society where there's these DEI and CRT principles are being promulgated. You can imagine, though, you know, people being afraid to go to doctors of a particular race. If it's different, maybe different from theirs or something. I don't know. I'm just, I, it just occurred to me, right? Like, what a terrible thing we're doing with this. We were doing a terrible thing to incoming black doctors, for sure. Um, by embedding racial preferences in admissions, um, by making this about social justice and race, we are actually priming the public to distrust black doctors in the future. And that is very sad, because 
I know some of the highest quality black doctors in the nation. Dr. Nietzsche Zama, Dr. Ben Carson, um, all kinds of some of the some of the greatest doctors in America who are some of the most highly trained, highly skilled are black, but they are lumped in with people who definitely got into medical school because of racial preferences, and that's unfair to them. And I was I was even thinking in the opposite direction where someone who's black might have been taught that, you know, white whites are out to get him, so we, we wouldn't go to a white doctor. Yeah. Right? That, that's also a good point. That's also a good point. Well, there's a new study. So what the CRT folks like to say in, in response to my argument, they like to say that um, uh, black patients are literally being killed by white doctors. And they will point to studies that says, for example, uh, uh, a, a white doctor who administers care to a black patient, uh, to a black newborn, has a three times higher likelihood of of, of mortality than a black patient being administered care from a black doctor. That is a study that was retweeted by CNN. They, they focused on that study on TV. You go to the methodology of that study, it is, com it is all wrong. It's a bad methodology, and uh, those are studies that should not be used. Um, there's another study, by the way, there's another study that I want to mention. Um, they claim that white doctors are more likely to leave black patients in pain um, in diabetic insulin treatments. So when you're diabetic, you need insulin, and white doctors are less likely to prescribe this, um, pain, this less painful insulin treatment than black doctors. But they, they forget a lot of confounding factors. When doctors are evaluating whether to prescribe something to a patient, they're evaluating on a number of reasons, on a number of things. And one of those is their, their concern about the patient's ability to consistently do the treatment by themselves. And when they're not certain of that, then prescribing that treatment actually harms the patient more. Because if the patient is not doing it, then they have to pay for this treatment that they're not consistent, consistently administering themselves. So yes, the doctors are making a judgment, but this judgment is not racist. It is based out of care for the patient's need, and it should not be ascribed to racism. Hmm. Fascinating. So um, what do the students at the school think about this? Right now, right now we're in the process of making students more aware. Um, a lot of the students are already aware about what's going on, but they are afraid to speak out. I spoke with a physical, uh, a physical therapy student who talked about um, a professor coming in, a medical school professor coming in and, and saying, you know, we need to be concerned about access to health care. You need to take this implicit bias test. So he took a thing called an implicit bias test, an IAT, uh, which is a disc now discredited model of trying to determine whether you're secretly a racist, but they made him take this test. He took it. Uh, he had to take a credit hour of a class uh, that investigated uh, racial disparities in healthcare uh, and queer disparities in healthcare. And it was told from the lens of critical race theory and queer theory. So he, the, the students are definitely aware that these DEI programs are going on. Um, but they are yet unaware about how fully it is infiltrated into the medical profession and also how much they're going to be judged by these things later on in their career. 
So I'm in the process of telling, talk, talking to students right now, and I'm literally out on the street at the medical school talking to these students. I'm talking to the students, hey, did you know that these principles that you're learning are actually going to affect your career? You know, <laughs> they're going to affect your eligibility for fellowships. Right now, UNC is offering a black-only fellowship for neurosurgery. It's only available to black applicants. It's going to affect your ability to get fellowships, residency, it's going to affect how patients treat you. It's going to affect how hospital administrators treat you. If the Biden agenda is allowed to continue the equity agenda, which is, of course, about race, um, it's going to affect the grant money that you're going to get in the future. We have to put a stop to this. Well, you have another case that you've been involved with, which is at Harvard, actually, and it's this Harvard discrimination against Asians case. It's now at the Supreme Court. Where are things at with respect to that? That's a, great, that's a great question. The Supreme Court justices are going to decide on the Harvard case most likely in June. And uh, I do expect that Students for Fair Admissions, which is the organization that I'm on the board of, will win. And so maybe just briefly kind of explain to me, you know, what the case is and then um, how far it's come, you know, basically. what you think the sort of the, the strongest arguments you've maybe presented were? So in 2014, a group called Students for Fair Admissions sued Harvard for discrimination against Asians. And people were like, why would they do that? The reason why they do that is because Harvard has this diversity rationale, a DEI rationale. Uh, they say we need more diverse applicants and they just happen to label Asians as not diverse. So what we know what they mean by diverse student body. They want more black and Hispanic students. They don't want more Asian students. And, uh, and so the Asians perform too well. I'll just, I'm just going to yeah, yeah, jump yeah. in here. Yeah, no, the, and, and what we learned in the, in the process of the discovery of the case is that an Asian in the highest academic, uh, the highest 10% of all Harvard admissions um, academically has a lower chance to get in than a black person in the fourth lowest decile of admissions at Harvard. So there are standards. Uh, an Asian has to score about 273 points higher on the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black person, about 120 points higher to have the same chance of admission as a white person. So that's based on the discovery data that we learned. It is different standards and it is discrimination. What is the judge saying? So in 2019, so Harvard presents this competing case. Um, their case is that the Asians are not discriminated against if you include a thing called a personality score. When you apply to Harvard, you're judged on three things, academics, extracurriculars, and a personality score. Um, Asians score the highest academics, highest in extracurriculars, and then they score the lowest out of all of the races on the personality score. And this was used as evidence in the trial that Harvard wasn't discriminating. But what Students for Fair Admissions, my organization, has been arguing, and I think successfully, is that the personality score is just a proxy for Harvard's discrimination. They will look at a, an essay written by a guy with a last name Wong or Shu, and they will say, you know, this student it's not, he's not, he's good, but he's not amazing. And they will look at a student whose last name is like Hernandez or something, 
and they would say, this student is amazing, we have to take him. You know, and we actually, we, had, we actually had an economist break down the applications, application by application, and the economist, whose name is Peter Sidiakono, you can read about him, says after reading those applications, he sees the unfair standards that were given. He could read the exact same application, the only thing changed is a person's name and race, and um, Harvard would label one standard strong, which is SS, which is like good but not good enough, and they would label the other, this is amazing, we have to take him. Fascinating, with the only deter other determinant being race, presumably, is that? And what, what, what would, you know, what would a uh, Harvard admissions officer grade a personality on? It could be things like maybe a teacher recommendation, alumni recommendation, the strength of your personal essay. But the, what we found was that the Asians actually score highest on alumni recommendations, and they score highest out of all the races on teacher recommendations, and they score second highest out of all the races on counselor recommendations. Big whooping deal. Um, there's no objective metric that you can link to the personality score except for race. Fascinating and again disturbing. So you and you're you're confident you're gonna win this one. You can never be too confident. Um, but I will even say that even what people call who people call a swing justice, Chief Justice John Roberts, who defended Obamacare um, and other things, he has made public his disdain for affirmative action. He has made public. He said in a 2005 decision when he was a dissenter, the only way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Now, I will say in 2014, we had a similar affirmative action case, Fisher versus University of Texas, um, that we thought was going to go our way too, but ended up going the other way. But this, we're even more confident because Katanji Brown-Jackson actually recused herself and she's most likely to be sympathetic to Harvard's viewpoint, but she was on the Harvard Board of Overseers. So that was a question asked during her Supreme Court hearing, and she did say, I will recuse myself, and she did recuse herself. Before we talk about your book, uh, School of Woke, which I'm very interested in learning more about. Um, in fact, I've just been reading James Lindsay's new book, The Mar Marxification of Education, which is, again, fascinating, but also it's kind of helping me understand a lot of what's happened in the academy. Before we go there, I want to talk about this, uh, you know, academic scandal at Thomas Jefferson High School, uh, which, of course, you know a lot about. So tell me. Well, I wrote the first chapter of my previous book, An Inconvenient Minority, was all about Thomas Jefferson High School. And what, we, what I discovered at Thomas Jefferson High School was that the woke the Progressive School Board, which is controlled by progressives, Thomas Jefferson High School is the number one math and science high school in the nation. And recently, the school got about 70% Asian. It used to be 70% white, now it's 70% Asian. Why? Because the Asians were just studying harder. They were getting the top math scores in the nation. So yes, they were going to Thomas Jefferson. And the Progressive School Board got mad about that. So what happened? Well, George Floyd happened, and uh, they brought in Ibram X. Kendi, uh, an, an author, a critical race theory author, the author of How to Be Anti-Racist, speak about how standardized tests are racist. So they got rid of that whole admissions process. They made it a holistic lottery admissions process, which is now being sued right 
uh, there's actually a lawsuit against that right now. But even more recently, because of this admissions process, what it has created was they started admitting kids who were just not qualified. You know, this is the number one math and science high school. These kids are going to be nuclear engineers. But if 30% of the kids who are admitted are now not qualified, it creates a great uh, imbalance in the school's makeup. And they decided to rectify this imbalance, not by rectifying their admissions process, but by withholding awards from the actual high-performing students because they wanted to make the low-performing students feel better. So that's what happened at Thomas Jefferson School. It is a consequence of the racial preferences that they were already doing. They admitted lower qualified students and now because they admitted lower qualified students they wanted to make these students feel better um, so they stopped doing the awards for the higher qualified students who by the way were almost entirely Asian. So they were withholding these National Merit Scholarship Awards from well qualified Asians who could have used those scholarship awards to apply for colleges uh, for the sake of appeasing the feelings of those at the uh, lower end of the spectrum. So what is the substance of this lawsuit then? So the substance of the lawsuit at Thomas Jefferson High School, from my understanding, is that you are penalizing uh, Asian students. It's the same script, it's the same kind of lawsuit as uh, what, what Students for Fair Admissions filed against Harvard. I mean, it's true. It's true. You are penalizing Asian students for being Asian. Um, if Asians, let me just tell you a statistic to your viewers, the average Asian American studies 13 hours a week. The average white person studies 8 hours a week. The average black person studies 5 hours a week. I'm talking about kids K through 12. So why are there disparities in educational achievement? It's not because of racism. It's because of study habits. It's because of family structure. It's because Asian Americans have the highest rate of two-parent families, lowest rates of drug use, lowest rates of crime in the country. It's about culture. And if you're really going to fix the problems in these school systems, if you're really going to fix the fact that Thomas Jefferson only had 1% or lower of their students are black, which, you know, I'm, I also lament. Um, but if you're really going to fix that problem, racial quotas is not going to fix the problem. You have to go into the K-12 middle, middle schools and elementary schools, diagnose the discipline issues that are going there, diagnose the study habit issues going there, diagnose the single parenthood, meaning you can't read to your kid, you're too caught up with work to do other things, and I'm very sympathetic to these mothers who are in those situations, but those are leading to these problems. So tell me about your book, that, and when is it coming out? So my new book is called School of Woke. It's coming out on August 1st of 2023, this year. And my motivation for writing this book was, as I was investigating racial preferences, I became very concerned with the racial achievement gap in our country, because there is a racial achievement gap in our country. I guarantee it. Uh, people always talk about how America is not an educated country because our PISA scores are lower compared, which is an international performance score. Our international performance scores are lower than like European nations. But actually, this is the sad part. This is the part that they'll never tell you. If you break it down by race, the Asian PISA scores are, are basically on par with Singapore and some of the best educated countries in the nation. The white PISA scores are also very good, 
Um, they're equivalent to some of the Scandinavian countries, but the black PISA scores are terrible. They're, they're, they're just terrible. And the racial achievement gap hasn't closed. It hasn't closed over the past 30 years. By the way, we've spent three times as much money on public education in those past 30 years, adjusted for inflation. So what have we been spending it on? And the answer is, as a result of my investigation in School of Woke, we've been spending it on internalizing critical race theory principles in our school system. We've been spending it on teaching black kids that society is against them. We've been spending them on new diversity, equity, and inclusion administrators to teach uh, queer theory and uh, relationship-oriented pedagogy to teachers so that they can continue to derail these students from pushing them in math, pushing them in science, and instead pushing a false racist narrative on them. And it sickens me. It's a, it's a heartbreaking investigation because I went into two major school districts, Loudoun County Public Schools, Santa Barbara Public Schools in California. And I found that what they're teaching in these public schools that they get so much funding for is fundamentally, it's not even doesn't teach them things, it's anti-learning. At Santa Barbara High School, if you check born in Mexico, and you're an immigrant parent, most a lot of these parents are illegal immigrants. If you check born in Mexico, they put your kid through a so-called bilingual program um, where you're not actually learning English anymore. They teach you 10% English, 90% in Spanish. And they do this in the name of diversity and equity. We want to make sure all our cultures are represented. We want to teach Spanish to people. Ooh, Spanish, it's great. But they're dooming these kids to not being able to learn English for the rest of their lives because they want to facilitate a critical race theory narrative of multiculturalism. Explain to me anti-ed, how it's anti-education. Think about the traditional model of education. The traditional model of education is taxpayer dollars pay for schools who educate your children who later become taxpayers. And so it's a beneficial cycle. Now invert that model. The model is changing. Your taxpayer dollars are going into a school system. The school system has become a massive bureaucracy whose purpose is to benefit the bureaucracy. They are now paying diversity administrators, human resource counselors. They're paying superintendents massive salaries. They're paying businesses who, and I talk about one of these businesses, Panorama Education, uh, which is a child of Merrick Garland's son-in-law, a student surveying platform. He got paid millions of dollars to work with Fairfax and Loudoun County Public Schools to survey their children on critical race theory. They're paying these businesses and they're creating a new fiefdom, a new little kingdom uh, of wokeness. Um, and the new principles that they're teaching within this kingdom is justifying this kingdom. What, let me tell you about what's happening in our education schools. They are teaching teachers, their new teachers, that the primary purpose of being a teacher is to build a quote-unquote relationship with your students. It's not to teach them math. It's not to build their cognitive abilities. It's not to help them become a better social person. It's to build a personal relationship with this student. In fact, Jamie Almanzon, who was uh, the uh, equity collaborative, he was uh, one of the coordinators of Loudoun County Public Schools, 
preached to teachers that the internet teaches information better than these, that these teachers ever could. So what does this relationship pedagogy mean? It means that these teachers are trying to be your friends, right? And they are trying to help you with your social problems, including, by the way, whether you're gay or not, uh, whether you should come out in school at the age of nine or 10. Now these teachers are taught to be a supportive friend, um, which justifies the entire DEI bureaucracy, which means that we need more guidance counselors because these kids are so mentally anxious, which means we need um, more uh, tech consultants because we need to survey these kids and all of their real problems. So they generate a list of problems, including their so-called racial oppression, to justify the new higher education, the new K-12 education bureaucracy. Kenny, what is the most egregious example of the application of DEI or CRT principles in the education system that you're aware of? I think it is the protection of predators. So long as they espouse DEI and CRT principles. So in Santa Barbara, one of the investigations that I did, um, and this is so sad, but there was a, uh, a, a world history teacher who was an avowed Marxist who also preyed on his, uh, his students. And I had an interview with one of these students. And she tells me about how the school system protected this man because this man was instrumental in Santa Barbara's progressive CRT agenda. He would attend all of the seminars, all of the parties with the liberal funders. He would get grant money for ethnic studies in Santa Barbara, which is a CRT ideology. It's a CRT history class. He was a black man in a town that is 1% black. He was the shining, living hope of everything that progressives and leftists wanted. There was only one problem. He was a predator. And so, this is not just theory. This really motivates people to a religious conviction, almost, where they will protect their own if their own make CRT a priority in the school system. Even to that extent, it's unbelievable. And the nonprofits that protected this man is even more unbelievable. One of the things I talk about is social emotional learning. It's a uh, principle that says that students need to uh, learn how to you know, be better behaved. We want to prevent teen suicides. Okay, that's, it's very nice sounding principle. But there are nonprofits in Santa Barbara and schools across the nation that claim to use the social-emotional learning model. And really what they're doing to these students is they're getting these students to touch each other. They're getting these students to be emotionally vulnerable to grown adults in ways that are inappropriate. Um, and they, they protect these predators. Uh, one of the nonprofits really protected uh, this man who uh, assaulted this, this young lady. And uh, it, is, it is horrible. It is horrible. And by the way, this nonprofit was funded 
by the Santa Barbara public school system, which goes into my larger point, which is that the school system's money is now being redirected away from genuinely teaching the students into helping the growing industry of CRT and DEI bureaucracy that is impacting our nation negatively. You know, everything you're telling me very much comports with a lot of what James Lindsay has found, at least what I've read so far. It's very, very interesting. When bureaucracies grow and become entrenched, it can be very hard to shed institutions of them. I'm sure you've thought about this. So James and I have actually talked, and actually my interview with him is in the book, School of Woke. He says that the best way to fight this monkey is to shine the light on them. When you shine the light, cockroaches flee. I have to disagree with James slightly. It may take out the worst 20% of actors, but this entire system is deeply entrenched. They will come back with a new acronym. If it's not CRT, if it's not DEI, it will be something else. But people need to know that this is coming from the same Marxist framework that is coming out of our education schools, saying that a teacher's primary job is to build a relationship with students to teach them to be uh, a, to, to realize their own oppression. That's what Paulo Freire, the author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which sold 750,000 copies of the United States wrote. The object of education is to make a, a kid realize their own oppression. Parents, activists, everybody need to understand that this is fundamentally what is being taught in our school system right now. And it is affecting the lives of many children, primarily minority children, but now leaking into all kinds of places in our country right now. So if shining the light on the realities of what these bureaucracies do isn't enough, what, what else are you proposing? I propose a couple of different things. One, we have to, we as, as, uh, as people who care about our children, um, we need to actually not just bring to attention what's going on at these school board meetings and everything like that, but we need to propose something. We need to propose something. And we need to hold these people accountable. Uh, one thing that I talk about in my book, for example, is proposing school choice. Okay, fine. You can have your uh, indoctrination factory, but allow me to send my kid to some place that is not that. And actually this is something that is very popular with black Americans. In fact, over 60% of black Americans have a favorable opinion of school choice. Another thing that I talk about is doing more investigations of the schools and holding the actors, especially the superintendents, accountable. So in Loudoun County Public Schools, uh, the superintendent, Scott Ziegler, sat on a case of a transgender sexual assault. This has now been confirmed. There was a gender fluid person who sexually assaulted a, a child. And Scott Ziegler, the superintendent, saw this and sat on it. He would not tell the public about this, even when directly asked if there were confirmed cases of, 
of gender fluid sexual assaults at his school. He would not confirm it. He lied. But uh, when Glenn Youngkin won uh, the, the Virginia gubernatorial election, he brought his attorney general to investigate that school system. They determined that Loudoun County Public Schools did sit on this case, and they, they had to fire him the next day. Scott Ziegler is no longer superintendent of Loudoun County Public Schools. Hooray! But we need to hold the people who are in charge accountable. That's what I would say. More than just exposure, but correctly framing this as, as an issue that deserves the superintendent's attention. Or, if they make the wrong decisions, to fire them. Well, Kenny Shu, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Jan, thank you. Thank you all for joining Kenny Shu and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.